0: Hello and welcome to Taking Stock I'm Mandy Johnston I'll be keeping you company for the next hour with some more great guests and some interesting conversation on today's show We were contacted by one of our listeners on Twitter this week asking us to give the old Montrose Ryan Tuberty story a break Sadly we're not going to leave it completely alone but I am going to be discussing it in a different way because I'm going to be discussing the relationship between RTE and politicians with former communications minister Dennis Nocton and I'll be asking him how that relationship relationship works in real life. But the good news for our listener from Wexford is that we will be covering the issue that you did raise, which was the development in the US that there are now multiple whistleblowers with high clearances from within the US government who are coming forward with disclosures and information about UFOs and the knowledge around that. These are people who have worked and still work in government. So we're going to be joined today by Jeff Wise, who's a scientist, he of Netflix fame, and we're going to try and get an understanding of what's happening in the US Congress about this issue. And finally, we'll be digging into the world of the Wagner Group. We'll be talking about their origins and their leader. And if you want to get in contact with us about any of today's items, you can email us at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at Stock NT. So we're going to start today by looking at what's going on in the US Congress in relation to highly sensitive and classified information, because a whistleblower who happens to be a former intelligence official says that the US government has intact and partially intact craft of non-human origin. Now. I know a lot of uh, a lot of the mainstream media don't cover this type of thing but we like to ask questions here on taking stock even if it is a little bit off the beaten track and Jeff Wise is a journalist who specializes in aviation, adventure, psychology and science and many of you got in contact with us uh, the last time Jeff was on the program because it was a very interesting topic about uh, this issue as well. And Jeff is he of Netflix fame? He was a major part of that highly successful Netflix documentary, What Happened to Flight 370. And I'm delighted to welcome Jeff back today. Jeff, you're very welcome back to News Talk. Thank you so much for having me. Now, now you very kindly uh, joined us the last time to explain to us what was going on over the skies of America when that balloon or blip that was blown out of the sky over Washington and you explained to us what was going on at that time. So I'm hoping you'll be able to uh, untangle all of this for us as well. Uh, I mentioned in the introduction, this is all surrounding highly classified information uh, in the US. But can you start us off today by telling us who exactly David Grush is? Because he's the guy who's at the centre of all of this.
1: Well, right. So this guy is, is saying, hey, I'm a high ranking uh, U.S. intelligence official. I have the secret information. Take it from me. This is the real deal. There's like this alien spacecraft that the government has. Um, these are the kinds of claims that we've been hearing, you know, really for decades. Um, and it all comes down to the credibility of this person. And unfortunately, I just think at this point it remains kind of in the realm of hearsay um it's just not enough to really parse if if there is more information that is there i think it will come out and i just don't think we're there yet
0: mm. But that is an interesting point because uh, I heard a comment recently about people who spot UFOs always seem to be people with T-shirts with no sleeves in them. And here <laughs> we have this guy who's an insider, basically, um, somebody who's familiar with the congressional system and a liaison person within that. So are his uh, claims being credibly received by Congress people because of who he is? Or is there something else at play here and, and why they're suddenly sort of taking it a little bit more seriously than usual?
1: Well, we certainly have had a change in the environment where since 2017, when the New York Times reported that the that the government did have this um, somewhat unorthodox office that was looking into UFO claims. Um, you know, the, the government is now actually taking it very seriously and they are now issuing reports um, and there are congressmen who are saying, like, you have to be open with us. You know, there's been rumors for too long. The secrecy is not really in anyone's best interest. Um, and so we really do live in a time where the government is taking um, questions about UFOs seriously and is issuing, I think, very well grounded and thought out reports. However, I think the, th- the take-home lesson as of right now is that nothing has been discovered that is inexplainable uh, or that in any way indicates that we're being visited by extraterrestrials, which is, I think, what really what people really want to know. Mm. Are there aliens among us? Have they landed their spacecraft here? Mm. Um and so you do get, and and so unfortunately, we also live in a time in which the fringe has become mainstream. And so you have um, people making claims that are are not frankly very serious, but that are being taken up by, say, Congress people. Now, if you say I'm a member of Congress, that seems like you should be a serious person. But the the fact is that we have deeply unserious people who are in Congress right now. We have some very fringe characters in Congress um, who are making like who r- routinely throw around. Um, just crazy claims. And so, so it all has to be taken with a massive grain of salt. We just are in a very confusing information environment
0: right now. Yeah, that's a really good point because a lot of these, as you say, marginal figures sort of want to use this maybe as an opportunity to hit the headlines. But if you park the, the old, you know, Did you find an aircraft and, you know, is ET on it? Park all that for a second and let's just talk about the government programs in in relation to exploration or what might be out there. That could be an interesting thing, really, to see if the Pentagon or the US government uh, are are coming to a point um, that they could release some of the information on programs like that that have been held back before.
1: I think the background to understand all this is that there are things in the sky that we don't understand as as much as we once did, and the reason for that one one very well known reason for that is that there are all kinds of drones and autonomous craft and, and automated systems that are out there and flying around. This the, the Chinese spy balloon being an excellent example. It turns out that on the, in the last Um, recent decades, it's been possible to build balloons that stay aloft way above the stratosphere almost indefinitely and then can steer around and are very hard to detect. And so that's not an extraterrestrial, but it's something that is concerning, that is hard to detect, that... You know, the government really wants to know what is out there. Mm. You know, the truth is out there, as they used to say in the X-Files, but what is it that is that is that thing? Um, and so there's a lot of interest in the government in saying, like, we're, we don't want to stigmatize reports of unidentified flying objects. We want to know what these things are because they might be hostile. They might be gathering intelligence on us. Um, you know, we've seen in Ukraine how th- you, these small um, or large uh, autonomous vehicles can really wreak havoc. Um, on conventional uh, war uh, forces. Mm. So we, we live in a time in which it's really important to understand a, a quickly changing environment, and part of that really overlaps with long-standing interest in unidentified flying objects slash extraterrestrials.
0: Mm. Yeah, because there was a time that the only people who could, I suppose, afford to have, have things up there were governments and it would be involved in a massive program. But now, as you say, uh, the skies are in some ways becoming more accessible and utilized for things like warfare in a way that they haven't been before. You mentioned the yeah. Ukraine situation there. Um is that war? you know, a particular one where they have used things like drones in a way that, you know, it hasn't ever interacted with war before? And is that something to do with how, I suppose, curious we are about this type of activity now as governments and and national governments look at it a bit more?
1: I think it's really driven home how transformative this technology can be and how widely accessible it is and so you have ukrainians and russians alike deploying these commercial off-the-shelf hobbyist drones to drop hand grenades on each other Mm -hmm. um you can blow up a you know million dollar tank with a 30 dollar um uav and so you know um, amongst the um Suspects in some of these these mysterious balloons that have been, you know, shot down over the United States are hobbyists—people who are taking off-the-shelf um, components and building balloons that can go up into the stratosphere. And they might just have like a little, you know, Wi-Fi payload or something, take a picture. Um, uh, but I, it's believed that some of the things that were shot down in the wake of that initial Chinese balloon were just hobbyists, or maybe even a toy balloon that got up high up there, and so. It, this technology is has become so powerful and also so inexpensive that it can really be opened up to any number of people potential
2: players.
0: Mm. One of the other things we're hearing a lot more of is discussions about people like Elon Musk and Richard Branson even and uh, I suppose more business driven people rather than scientists with ambition to uh, not just go to the moon but land on it and colonise it. Do you think that that's brought a different dynamic into how people are looking at um, space activity or activity in the skies now?
1: yeah it is really fascinating how democratized space travel has become The idea that you know it used to be back in like the days of the mercury program that was like you know the government would select the sort of best and the brightest and train them to a high degree and they were risking their lives uh and now it's just you, know, you have a checkbook with enough dollars in it um just we'll send you we'll send you to space maybe even to the moon um you know the um one of the um Guys who died um, in the Titanic submersible had just the previous year been up into space. Mm. So this all kind of becomes, you know, the sort of the realm of things that um, people with um, a sense of risk and some dollars uh, can... Can access.
0: Mm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'm speaking to Jeff Wise, scientist and aviation expert. Jeff, you mentioned the the exploration um, in relation to the Titanic there and how that went disastrously wrong, and and a, a number of big businessmen, you know, sadly lost their lives. Uh, what what was your take on? That activity, and do you think that uh, the new scrutiny that's being placed on those adventure, if we can call them adventure adventurers, is going to halt that type of expedition in the future?
1: Well, that's a great question. It, it, it was fascinating to me how much of a hold that story took on the public imagination. You know, that story, you know, was a dominant story for about four days. And I think when a story really captures the imagination in that way, it signals that there's something else going on. Like this is really plucking our strings in a way that deserves some, some inquiry. And and to me, I think the theory was that it sort of encapsulated so much that's going on in our society right now. You've got these, this, you had this kind of like smooth talking, charismatic snake oil salesman who was saying, "Hey, I've got this great technology. Don't look too deeply at it," you know, which was so redolent of the whole like Theranos scandal or the WeWork mm. scandal or, or frankly, Elon Musk taking over Twitter and saying, "Look at me. I'm so smart. I can do anything. Don't worry about the consequences." And and then you have these you know super rich people who are just so happy to be fleeced who are just so you know um, credulous and and willing to you know put their money and their lives on the line. We've seen again with Theranos and WeWork and um, so many other high tech. Um, you know, Pied Piper schemes where, you know, people just go along and, and, and the, the rest of us are kind of along for the ride where these these crazy technologies get touted and then, you know, just destroy so many people's life savings. Um, and it happens again and again and again. And I think there was, there was a certain degree of schadenfreude about it where, you know, it was very unpleasant. These people had died. It's Mm. tragic, especially the 19-year-old. And yet there was, like, very little sympathy from some quarters because people felt like, you know, we're so frustrated with, you know, when wealth gets so concentrated Mm. as it has been. Um, And I think it's worse in my country than yours, frankly. But, um, you know, when when so much power gets concentrated in the hands of so few, and these so few seem so reckless and cavalier, Mm. Um, it be- and and the rest, and we all pay the price Absolutely. for this
0: recklessness. Yeah. I got to tell you, we're not devoid of Schadenfreude here in Ireland. It's it's a uh, there's a little bit of it going on in relation to another story that we'll be talking about later on in the program. But I just want to go back, if I can, Jeff, uh, to the original story that we had John to talk about because I'm really interested in getting your views on this, and I don't really think I'm there yet. I want to mm. kind of go through. Three different headlines from stories over the last number of days. Just Congress doubles down on explosive claims of illegal UFO retrieval. Congressmen suggest UFOs may be ancient civilization. Top officials have first-hand knowledge of UFOs. Why do you think this is happening now?
1: I think it's happening now because we are in a fast-changing information environment in which technology, mainly the internet, also mobile computing, has given people the ability to to hear what they want to hear. I think we live in an environment that is – it, it it's, it's very amenable to delusion it's like if you want to believe in your weird delusion there is somebody who will tell you that you're right mm. uh and you know and this chat gpt is very interesting to me because if, if you ask it a question it almost says like yeah yeah sure that's right you know what i mean it's very easy to get reinforced in beliefs that are appealing to you yeah so and frankly i think the odds that there's actually extraterrestrials visiting us Um, is much lower than the odds that some, um, publicity seeking, you know, used car salesman who got himself elected, um, to Congress from Florida, um, and just is trying to like get himself in the headlines through whichever way he can and knows that this is a hot button topic that will get eyeballs and clicks. Um, I think it's about clicks, frankly. I think it's about people wanting to, to hear the salacious or, you know, outrageous story. Um,
0: that's great. That was that's 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 great, Jeff, because you've you've um you've actually answered my last question and we've run out of time. I was gonna ask you, do you think is there life out there? But you clearly think it's something else that's going on. But look, really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today to give us your insights. That was Jeff Wise, journalist specializing in aviation, adventure, psychology and science. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us again.
1: Always a pleasure, thank you.
0: You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. Join us after the break and we'll dive into the world of the Wagner militant army and its exiled leader. That's all after this short break. You're welcome back This is News Talks Taking Stock. Now, last weekend saw a lot of military activity in Russia that was initiated by Wagner Group and its leader. But who exactly are they and what was it all about? Well, joining me now to give us a deeper insight into what might lie behind the organisation is Jen Kirby, who's Senior Reporter with Vox. Jen, you're very welcome to News Talks Taking Stock.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Now,
0: Jen, can you start us off by just providing our listeners and myself with a brief introduction to the Wagner Group itself and uh, where it started off and what were its origins?
3: Sure, absolutely. So um, the Wagner Group is uh, a private um, military company, but exactly how private it actually is has always been uh, a source of, of, um, of debate. But they ultimately got their start in um, 2014, or at least their uh, purported start. Uh, there were rumors, of course, during Russia's um, initial intrusion into the Donbass in 2014 and also annexation of Crimea of these so-called little green men who were, um, armed, um, individuals who, uh, weren't wearing any insignia and sort of the, 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 rumor kind of grew from there of this organization known as the Wagner group. Um, and from there they, uh, expanded and basically, um, you know, were active in Syria and now have been, um, involved in a lot of uh countries in africa like the central african republic and mali where they are essentially this organization that um is there to kind of give russia a degree of plausible deniability when it comes to achieving its foreign policy and geopolitical aims Um, they often provide things like security training sometimes combat troops um, also sort of information and disinformation um, activities and often are paid sometimes with lucrative contracts for things like natural resources, like mining and diamonds and gold. And so um, it is both a money-making organization, but also, again, a way for Russia to exert its influence uh, with having a degree of distance from from Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin itself.
0: Mm. Private military companies, so really, are at the core of this. But they're not, you know you know, confined to Russia. The US government have used them in the past in Iran and Afghanistan. So it's not completely, um, you know, just a Russian invention, is it?
3: No, I mean, private military companies do exist um, and have to, but Wagner Group is unique in that it is always kind of operated as a bit of a shadowy organization in this bit of a gray zone where it is, you know, it, it actually didn't really even exist on paper until uh, this year in Ukraine because private military companies were outlawed in, in, in Russia, which mm. now we know maybe why. Um, but it, it only really started to, to kind of be more explicitly embraced um, in recent years. But sort of the goal of Wagner was, again, to sort of create this kind of shadowy organization that advanced Russian interests, but also had a degree of distance from the state. And the, the idea that this was totally separate from sort of the Russian government is is very unlikely given the sort of missions that they were were set out to accomplish. Um, but at the same time, obviously, its leadership, which is some of uh, its leadership and Prigozhin himself, the the leader of the Wagner group, were, you know, enriching themselves at the time. But I think it's also hard to see them as complete freelancers either.
0: So essentially... It, and you keep using the the word shadowy, and I see it everywhere in relation to them. They seem like this covert sort of Russian um, paid military that go in to prop up dictatorships and Africa and other places. When they're in there, what what are they doing with those countries? Are they providing training, security or what what's their what's their activity?
3: Yeah, they're kind of a, a bit of a one-stop shop um, oftentimes for uh, for countries, particularly those that might have sort of uh, maybe illiberal leaders. Um, you know, they can provide security training, you know, anti-terrorism activities. They have been known in, in places like Syria to, to potentially be involved in, in combat operations. They can provide security, you know, security guards um, and also sort of information operations as well. Um, And so they're kind of, you know, they take advantage or I wouldn't say take advantage, Mm. but they're making deals with countries um, that need sort of may have a security gap or, you know, have a leader who wants protection while he's in power. And oftentimes they are making these deals and providing also equipment and training and things like that. And so it's sort of a way for them to, again, exert influence, um, but also make money in the process.
0: Absolutely, because there has to be some kind of quid pro quo for the Russians. In every um, relationship they have, so what are they getting back? Is it energy? Is this resources and presumably allies?
3: Yes, absolutely. So definitely, um, you know, oil, energy fields, things like that. But again, these, um, you know, mining gold. I, you know, the United States um, uh, just this week put out a, a warning about sort of the the connection of gold, for example, to to the Wagner group. And so they use these, these resources, which in some ways gives them a degree of, of power, right. They're not just getting like a, a, you know, Money they have now controlling sort of an asset and a resource that they can continue to to use, and so those are the kind of deals which again also makes them hard to to dislodge or to um, to sort of weaken because they they gain a foothold there in a pretty substantial way. And
0: Jen, what of their leader Prigozhin himself? Um, where did he emerge from? What's his background?
3: Yeah, so he is a bit of an interesting character. Um, he was originally a, a hot dog seller um, in his, his background, but he grew up in St. Petersburg. And, you know, he was actually um, imprisoned He um, for, I think, street robbery. And he emerged from prison and sort of around the fall of the Soviet Union. So a real time for sort of opportunists. Mm. And I think that's exactly what Progoshin is. And so he, again, was a hot dog seller and got into this uh, sort of catering business. And that is how he He made a connection with Putin um, and he started winning some lucrative contracts to cater for, you know, uh, schools and government. And kind of from there, he became, you know, he is an oligarch. He has ties to Putin, but he's always been a bit of an outsider as well because of his background. Um, So Putin kind of, you know, in bringing him in his inner circle sort of saw him as, you know, a guy who had connections and kind of, could be the person to do maybe some of the Kremlin's dirty work with, again, that degree of plausible deniability. um, um you know, was involved, for example, or implicated in the, the 2016 um, troll farm that spread disinformation during the 2016 elections in the U.S. And so, and he also was sort of this head of the Wagner group and, you know, Exactly, whether he was the true founder. Of course, he claims to be, and ex- and exactly how much he was calling the shots um, was always a little bit unclear. Although, obviously, this weekend um, and the events that happened mm. in Russia sort of sort of made him uh, his sort of leadership of it much more clear.
0: Absolutely, we're going to get into last weekend's in just a second. But if you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock, and I'm speaking with Jen Kirby, who is the senior reporter with Fox. Now. Jen, you were talking about Prigozhin there, and his his reputed as being the person who set up this military force. But before we get into what happened last weekend, I want to talk about his utilization um, in in recent weeks in particular and months and what he's been doing with the media because he's been very clever at kind of developing relationships with bloggers and this has all kind of paid off for him in the long run. But you might talk to us a little bit about that and his relationship with the media.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he once, you know, he obviously... Uh, Wagner and Prigozhin started to play a much more substantial role in Ukraine in the actual battlefields, um, most uh, notably in the Battle of Bakhmut. And, you know, as sort of the the leader of the of fighters there, Prigozhin really used his position to kind of be outspoken and you know, I think there was always a sense when he started doing this and, mm. and you know, beginning to be critical of potentially the war effort, but more specifically, some of the, the leaders in the Russian military who are overseeing the war in Russia, you know, a sense that, he was kind of being serving a function in the system and, you know, there is a benefit to sort of criticizing the leadership and having sort of a voice of, of dissent, um, that maybe doesn't necessarily implicate sort of the the big man, so to speak, but, but, you know, can sort of create this, this, this tension. Um, but he sort of just continued to push it and push it much farther than I think a lot of people, um, even, even longtime observers of of were were maybe surprised that really most directly, criticizing by name. Um, There was, you know, a video of him standing among, you know, dead, dead soldiers, essentially, and saying, like, to these generals and the leaders of the Russian military, you know, how come you can't give us ammunition? And so he continued to kind of push that farther and farther using his own platform on Telegram, but also with, you know, pro-Russian bloggers. And then, of course, we saw, as sort of approaching this weekend, Prigozhin being almost much more explicit about sort of the not just the leaders and generals themselves but of the questioning the mission of the war Mm. and that I think is sort of where things really really escalated.
0: Absolutely Uh, look I'm sorry we don't have a long time for the last question but I do want to get your take on it because it's it's fascinating given everything you've said about the possibility of them being a covert private military company for Russia and he being uh, Putin another one of Putin's puppets what do you think last weekend was all about?
3: You know, I think we're all still trying to dissect it. (laughs) I mean, truly, I'm still have so many. No, no, so many, so many questions. And I think, you know, it it seems in the whole way that it played out is just so remarkable. But I think it does seem clear that Prigozhin was was trying to get attention. And of course, there has, you know, it sort of seems to be his primary motivation was as Prigozhin was getting, you know, a little bit more aggressive in his criticism, uh, maybe getting a little bit too big uh, for his own ambitions. The, you know, Russia, the Russian government kind of put out this directive that would have brought Wagner fighters into the Russian military and sort of kind of taken away Prigozhin's center of power. And he seems to have, this is sort of seems to have been the trigger Mm. for why he staged this rebellion as sort of a pushback to this. Now, ultimately it was unsuccessful and that that's sort of the option available to him now. Um, But I think in some respects it might've been a guy who knew that his time was up and this was sort of the, the last grandstand to maybe attempt to, to, to exert some influence. And I think we'll have to see sort of what awaits Prigozhin and what awaits the Wagner Group, because, you know, we still are not really sure what the future for either of them are right now.
0: Absolutely. But Jen, your insights into all of that have been fascinating. And thank you for giving us your time today. That was Jen Kirby, senior reporter with Vox. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you so much.
0: You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. Coming up after the break, Dennis Nocton, a former Minister for Communication, lifts the lid on the relationship dynamic between politicians, the government and RTE. Join us for that after the break. Now, finally today, Dennis Nocton has just turned 50 and he's one of the most experienced politicians in Leinster House. He recently announced, though, that he'll be giving up politics after this dull term to start on new projects. But he's a veteran of the Oireachtas, having been elected to the Shannon at just the ripe old age of 23 in 1997. But he did work his way up to the top and he eventually became an independent minister for communications, climate action and environment. And he's with us today to talk about the relationship between Orti the Government and Politics Dennis Nocton you're very welcome
2: Thanks very much Thanks for having me Mandy
0: Now I just want to get into the relationship side of things rather than you know discussing all the ins and outs of what's going on with RTE and there's revelations by the new time coming out so I want to look at you know how that operates within government Um, You're a former Minister for Communications how would you characterise the relationship between government and RTE when you were there in terms of a power balance?
2: Well look I suppose first of all the department that uh, I was in charge of had quite a number of semi-state companies and in general semi-state companies are at arm's length from uh, the government and the department unless they require consent for a particular process or procedure where it's set out in legislation that they they needed that. Uh, Other than that, the only time that you would hear from the semi-states other than formally presenting their annual reports uh, to Cabinet uh, would be if there was a problem. And uh, I recall, you know, D Forbes uh, coming in telling me about the financial deficits in RT, and in fairness in the briefing I got when I was appointed minister, that was flagged up with me uh, and the issue of the TV licence uh, and Subsequent to my appointment, not long afterwards, I had David Mac Redmond, the new chief executive of On Post, coming in to me and telling me that he was going to run out of cash within 17 weeks. So they were the type of things where you'd have uh, the semi-states coming in. And in terms uh, of RT, look... Every politician is very conscious of the media and what's going on in terms of the operation of the media on a day to day basis, whether it's here in News Talk or RT. Uh, uh, but in terms of the day to day running uh, of RT, that was very much left at arm's length from government or from the department unless, as I say, there was a policy issue to be addressed.
0: Mm. And you said you really only heard from the semi-states when there was a problem, and the problem in this case was financial, and that remains the case now. Um, but we've now discovered that uh, despite the fact that there are financial problems and despite the fact that they have been banging down the door of government for many decades. They also didn't have the structures to deal with the finance that they did have. Do you now look back and sort of question some of the stuff that they told you at the time and think well was that even accurate?
2: Absolutely and it's it's not just me I suppose. Uh, one of the positive things that was done um, in the government after the economic recession was the establishment of New Era. Uh, it was within the NTMA Uh, And it was an advisory service for ministers in terms of the operation of the semi-state companies because they had a commercial remit, uh, you know, and how could you thoroughly and robustly investigate what they were requesting in terms of whether the numbers added up or not, you know, without going out to external sources and then you compromise that. So the new era was established and I have to say, Eileen Fitzpatrick and the team in new era were absolutely excellent and I worked very closely with them in terms of the work that we were doing with On post uh, at the time. And there was major restructuring taking place uh, in On post But there was always the feeling within government that... The that RT weren't really committed to the type of root and branch restructuring that was needed. It was all about headline cuts, you know, uh, staff cuts, rather than. A root and branch restructuring the organisation, seeing what its priorities were. It's supposed to be a public service broadcaster. Why not focus uh, on that? And and what, I think, why,
0: why do you think that was? Why do you think they weren't capable of the agility that maybe on post were? as you see, you keep mentioning them? So I'm detecting that you think on post went one way. Well,
2: but the reason I'm using on post is because that was the other crisis that I was dealing with at, at, at the time as minister. The third crisis that I was dealing with was uh, Bordnemona, Uh, And I was directly involved in trying to deal with the restructuring uh, there. And that's a company that has absolutely transformed itself in the last number of years. Some of it forced upon it because of circumstance. Uh, On post because of financial circumstances had to do it. But there was never really the view that within government circles anyway that RT was really committed to the type of radical reform that was needed for an organisation going into this century it was very much uh, based on the uh, ethos that was there at the establishment mm. uh, o- of the, the station which was very different and is a very different organisation should have a very different uh, purpose uh, today and I suppose you had people that had come up through the organisation that had been promoted into senior management and there wasn't probably enough of outside thinking coming into it.
0: Okay, that's interesting. So not enough business people coming into the journalism, media environment to bring their expertise maybe. Yeah, one
2: of the things that I tried to do uh, as minister was to try and bring that mix in at board level and bring different experiences and and perspectives in uh, at board level and that's the role a minister would have uh, in terms of of the ethos and culture with any semi-state (laughs) organisation.
0: Why do you think when it comes to funding RT in a public service broadcaster why do you think that it's been so difficult for successive governments to to actually solve this issue
2: Well look, look it's very simple in relation to it like the deficit in RT was as a result of a collapse in its advertising uh, revenue uh, and that was as a result of the economic But you could uh, argue
0: that the collapse in their revenue um you know, that was something they should have been able to deal with as well because other organisations in the media have had the same type of collapse.
2: Absolutely. And other organisations have had to radically restructure uh, the way they operate because of that. And RT, I think, have felt that they had the safety net of the TV licence. They just go cap in hand into the Minister of the Day, my predecessors, and say, oh, look, we need an increase in the TV licence. Now, there was no minister uh, that was had any... Uh, touch with reality was ever going to increase the TV license. In the depths of an economic recession where there was cutbacks all over the place and we were going to increase the TV license, that wasn't going to happen. And then as I came in uh, to office, you had the situation where you had the water charges which had been forced through the doll. and then after the election, the government was forced to to back down uh, on the, the whole water charges. So, increasing charges in another area when there was uh, a... a, a reversal of policy in terms of of water charges wasn't going to happen. And of course, remember, I also got landed with the bin charges debacle uh, at the time uh, as well. And that was, I suppose, in the first 12 months in uh, office, that was the one challenge that I was trying to grapple with was the the bin charges because we had only got a stay of execution, so to speak, for 12 months uh, in relation to it. So they were the priorities that were being dealt with at the time. You had RTE, looking for an increase in the TV licence. You had on post looking for an increase in the price of a stamp, Mm. which they did get, but it was part of an overall restructuring plan and a root and branch restructuring
0: an easier sell when you have those things to offer together Absolutely
2: and 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 you know I had something that I could go to the, the Minister for Finance the Minister of Public Expenditure and Reform with in terms of well look this is what we're getting uh, in return uh, for that
0: If you're just tuning in you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock and I'm talking to Dennis Nocton uh, TD um, about the relationship between RT the government and politics and I want to come back to that relationship between government and politics because um, an RT Sorry, because it's not all Ortez's fault either. Um, governments, successive governments, haven't come up with a solution, um, and no government, no politician likes increasing charges, no matter when. But sometimes you feel that that relationship has been about money and funding within government, within political circles, used maybe as a power, as a power stick uh, between them and RTE.
2: Well, I was very much out of the view that it didn't want that to I'm happen. I'm not saying you No, no, them. but, but uh, and I'll answer the, the question for you but I I was adamant and that's why I'm very wary about the current recommendations that are there for direct exchequer funding.
0: You're not in uh, favour of that?
2: No, I'm not in
0: favour of that.
2: I, I firmly believe in public service broadcasting not just through RTE but I've, as Minister I've made it quite clear I think uh, you know, the commercial radio stations also have a public service remit and that needs to be acknowledged. And I said that long before the, the pandemic that that needed uh, to happen. And But to be quite honest with you, I don't think across Leinster House there is an appreciation of the importance of public service broadcasting, uh, particularly in terms of current affairs and news. And I think we take that for granted here. And like all you have to do And why
0: is do you think they don't appreciate it? Why do you think that they because don't Because I understand?
2: suppose we, we have been lucky here in terms that we have you know in general an unbiased media in this that is Politically neutral, uh, so to speak. Like if you go to the United States, across the water, yeah, across the water in terms of the print media, the United States, in terms of the broadcast media, see where it's so polarized. Mm. And one of the things that I think was probably one of the most significant reports in terms of public service broadcasting in this country was the report by Martin Fraser. Into the uh, the government uh, strategic communications unit,
0: uh, and in that report, this is the former secretary so, general of, of, the the, Antichok, of the government. Yeah, and it was an investigation into the setting up of their own government unit. Yes, yes.
2: And Martin Fraser, in that report, made it very clear that for democracy to thrive, you had to have a sustainable public. Service uh, broadcasting network across the country. And he didn't just focus on RTE in relation to that. It was on the broader viability of of, uh, commercial and uh, the public sector broadcasters in this country. And I remember talking to D Forbes and Maya Doherty after that, and I said, look, This is a vital report and this is something that you really need to latch on to and pursue where you have the top civil servant in the country making the case for you. And I think you need to build on that now and get that communication strategy out there. But that didn't happen.
0: No. um, And we
2: see over the last few days, you know, how effective RTE is at from a corporate level in communications, you know, you know, a five year old child would nearly do a better job than they've been doing uh, over the last week. It has been horrendous to look at it from the outside.
0: You mentioned there earlier that your perception maybe that rte have felt the license fee was a safety net for them um, and maybe that inculcated a sense of entitlement within the organisation that's my interpretation uh, and one that i've voiced on many occasions and i should point out that i was a government press secretary so i i have had relations with the uh, rte uh, for a time but i want to ask you a little bit um deputy about What's happening now at RTA and the revelations that are being made. Have you been surprised by the lack of governance that we've seen over the last week?
2: Absolutely. Even
0: uh, even today.
2: Yeah. Uh, I have been absolutely flabbergasted with what uh, has been coming out. And
0: and did you see any element of that uh, when you were minister? Just remind us, what, what years were you there?
2: So I was minister from 2016 to 2018. No, I didn't. If I did, you know, I would have asked the likes of New Era or someone to go in uh, and thoroughly go through uh, the books uh, in relation to it and I would have asked New Era to go into some of the other semi state companies and do reports for me. So I wasn't shy uh, about doing that. If I had any suspicion in relation to RT, uh, I would have done that. But remember the context uh, at the time Uh, And that was right across the broadcasting sector, everyone was saying that advertising revenue had collapsed. Mm. And, you know, it was clear because on post collected the TV licences, it was clear there was a huge drop in the number of people buying their TV licence as well. So the figures were there, the overall headline figures were very obvious. So it wasn't obvious to me, you know, that there might have been other things going on behind the scenes. And the one thing that really annoyed me was finding out at the weekend about this barter account uh, and potentially the amounts of money uh, that have gone through it and some of the revelations that we've heard not just in terms of Ryan Tuberty's salary but other things that have gone through uh, that have been built into that uh, barter account and you know that really really has infuriated me as someone who had gone to Cabinet who had secured additional money uh, for RTE to try and help to deal with some of the deficit as they were involved in the reform programme.
0: Mm. If you were back there and you were minister now, what would you be doing? What do you think uh, Minister Catherine Martin should be doing now?
2: I think uh, Catherine Martin, I think, is in a very, very difficult uh, position uh, at the moment because, first of all, we need to get answers Um, and those answers have not been uh, forthcoming. Uh, And, I've been really disappointed this week with the lack of information that's come out. And I think uh, that makes Catherine Martin's job all the more difficult that that information uh, is not there. And I think, you know, she's going to have to look at all of the management and corporate structures within uh, RTE now. I think. And take control herself or what? Well, look, I think. Put in the medium term in, anyway, no. I think we need to look at what is the remit uh, of RT today? You know, should it have a commercial remit at all? Should it become solely publicly funded and purely deal with public service broadcasting and leave the entertainment and commercial uh, end of things to the private sector?
0: Uh, you know, and I think that debate needs to be had now. Well, it would that would make for a very slimmed down operation as a 1,800 jobs there so you know we hear politicians talking all week about the solidarity for uh, the workers do you think if it came down to it uh, there's going to be any change between now and the next election I mean there's local elections coming up next year there's a general election even if you did do something after uh, a general election it still means two years before probably anything substantial is going to be done in terms of funding from government Well look
2: If you look at it, the the issues that have arisen so far are on the commercial operation of of, of RTE. Um, And like RTE has a very broad public service remit, not just in terms of current affairs, but in terms of the arts. You know, it is supporting a lot of independent production, uh, which are, are effectively cost neutral in a lot of cases. Um, but there are other commercial aspects uh, of RT. So I think, I'm not talking about throwing out the baby with the bathwater here. You need to have a very effective uh Uh, news channels and television channels if people are going to watch it. There's no point having uh, good news content if people aren't going to switch it on because that's the only thing that's on uh, the television. So I think you need to look at the sector as a whole. And I'd go back to the comments that Martin Fraser made back in 2018, if I recall correctly, Uh, it was 2018 in relation to the Strategic Communications uh, Unit and I think my advice to Catherine Martin is to go back to that report and use that uh, as the basis to look at what is the public service remit today? What is the role of public service broadcasting and the public service broadcaster in that new broadcasting remit?
0: Mm. Just finally, question for you. Shunni Rahali revealed this week as well that she didn't tell the Minister Catherine Martin that they'd asked for D Forbes' resignation. Obviously, that's not the right type of relationship to have with a board member. But again, what should happen there?
2: Absolutely. Like that. that, that is unbelievable that the minister did not get a full briefing from uh, the chair of RT. And I suspect that, you know, the secretary general and the department and the minister are having a very long conversations about that as we speak.
0: Well, Dennis Nocton, thank you so much for giving us your time today. Uh, We appreciate your insights. That was Dennis Nocton, TD for Roscommon. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and why we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings. We're always available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. I'm very grateful to all of today's guests for their time and for their insights. My thanks, as always, to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Simon Keane on research and Hugo de Silva-Scott on sound. If you want to get in contact with us about any of today's items, you can email at com. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof, and then is Gavin Riley with On the Record. So, from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the rest of your day.